This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. The scripture reading for today is found in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and can be found on page 995 in your pew Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Good morning again. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if you are visiting today, let me say again, uh, we're really thankful for you, and we're really glad that you're here. So welcome. We are spending, uh, as a church, we're going to spend five weeks, so we have three more after today, going through kind of essential aspects of the Christian life that are also represented in our mission statement as a church. And we're spending those five weeks uh, leading up to September, at which point we will start the Sermon on the Mount, and we will be in that text in Matthew 5 through 7 up until Christmas. But, uh, but today we're going to continue talking about plainly just essential Christian aspects that are baked into our mission statement. Our mission statement is to exist, we exist, as cult, we exist to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. And this week I want to talk about that little phrase, to cultivate. And that's all I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about what it implies, because it implies a lot. And, and last week there were many assumptions that a small clause like this can assert. And I want us all to be aware of these kind of baked in assumptions that come with these phrases. Last week we said, we said that the two words, we exist, are pregnant with assumptions. And those assumptions included that we exist as created beings, beholden to our creator, and we exist as sinful beings in desperate need of redemption. And if those two statements are true, that we exist as creatures and sinners, then we can reason that we, we, we exist can't mean that we define ourselves, our creator defines us, it can't mean that we worship ourselves for only our God, our creator is worthy of worship, and we don't have to be self-absorbed. There's something bigger than us to pay attention to. Now, if that's the case, then it begs the question, what do human beings exist for? Or do we even exist for any reason at all? And if, if we do, then what is that reason? Do human beings exist for any reason at all? Or is our existence reasonless and meaningless? And here at the church, we operate from a functional assumption in our services and in all of our activities, in our worship, in our homes, how we raise our kids, how we live as married couples and families with the fundamental assumption that everyone on this planet is here for a reason. And that reason is clear. And we find that reason in scripture. 
the ultimate end for human beings, the ultimate end that human beings exist is for and toward and to um, shine more light on the glory of God. And within that ultimate end, there are multiple subordinate ends that work towards that future, that end, that ultimate end. And the one we're going to talk today about is the Christian's work. The way we sum up Christian work in our mission statement is by saying, we exist to cultivate. We exist to do something, to cultivate. Those are the only two words I'm going to camp out on this morning. But before I talk about the assumptions that go into that phrase, let me talk about some of the most common lies, the most common lies that assault us from the outside. Because the world, the flesh, and the devil want us to believe something different than the truth. The world, the flesh, and the devil are eager and zealous to deceive us. And I want us to be wise and understand what kind of case is being made against us all the time, everywhere. And before I do that, I'm going to pray for us and we'll get rolling. Holy Spirit, we are completely dependent upon you for illumination. We are completely dependent on you to open our eyes, to wake us up, to help us to see glorious truth in the Bible, to help us understand glorious truth about who you are. Holy Spirit, we need you this morning to convict our prideful hearts. We need you this morning to comfort our weary souls. We need you this morning to strengthen us and give us courage for the work that's in front of us. And we need you this morning to give us a deep, profound joy in the goodness and favor and glory of God. So would you come? Would you come and do that this morning? Would you do that through your word? We voluntarily submit to you and welcome you this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. Hey, we all exist for a reason, and that reason is not simply to perpetuate our, spe- our species. And that reason is not to achieve self-actualization. And I'll talk more about those false purposes, but for, let me first ta- tackle the subject of purpose at all and say that we, as Christians, believe that human beings are made for a reason. We're not nihilists or agnostics. This world was, is bursting forth with meaning and purpose. And before we can argue or pronounce what the right meaning or the right purpose is, what the biblical meaning or the biblical purpose is, we have to kind of dispel with the myth that life is meaningless. We know this, and we know that it's the case because of places like Romans 1, 19 through 23, which explains deep places in our hearts and souls about what human beings know. So if you care to, you can turn with me to page 939 in the Bibles that are in your pews. And I'm going to read from Romans 1, starting in verse 19. For what can be seen, sorry, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So they, that's us, that's anybody, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, and animals, and creeping things. 
When we read in places like the Gospel of John, which we just preached from not long ago, when we read from the Gospel of John, and when it talks about the world, this is the category, these are the kinds of things that it's talking about. There's an ignorance about God at work in the world, but it isn't an innocent ignorance. There's a darkened foolishness, but the Bible's clear that it's a rebellious and obstinate kind of foolishness. The minds and hearts of people are darkened towards and rebellious towards the purposes of God and the designs of the Most High God. And we can look outwardly and know that our lives bear significance. We can look at the faces of our children like we did this morning and experience the substance and weight of what it means to be a human being and what it means to be alive. And if there's purpose and meaning in the world, then we have to take issue with the God who decided what that purpose would be and decided that this world would exist. And we must admit that we can't give ourselves the kind of meaning or significance or purpose that we long for or that we desire. You can't summon meaning from inside yourself. You can't summon a purpose from inside yourself. It has to be given to you. So human beings in their darkened understanding deny the creator, deny his designs, deny the purpose for mankind. This is an attitude or a perception or a position or a worldview. It's an understanding about reality that is lawless and meaningless and reasonless. The world wants you to believe that you can create your own meaning, but you can't, but you can't. The view of the world that evacuates the supernatural or the transcendent is a materialism, an understanding of the universe that's transcendence-less, a view of existence that's dark, depressing, empty, and blank. And that's the view that we're here on planet Earth by sheer statistical anomaly. And we have no one to thank, no one that we owe our lives to, and we have no one to hate for that. And it's more than just saying that there is no God. It goes on to say that there's no meaning at all. And before I talk about the text, about our why, let me name two counterfeit reasons for existence that we're kind of inundated with all the time in this life. The first one is that we do not exist to merely perpetuate our species. This perspective is one of the counterfeit explanations for why we're all here, simply to perpetuate our species. This stance lies to itself and convinces itself that it's satisfied with that explanation. This slide tells you that you aren't created, you aren't here for any particular reason at all, you definitely aren't the design of some creator God that loves you, and because God doesn't exist, he can't explain to you who you are or what you are, and he can't explain to you what's going on inside you. He can't explain to you why you do the things you do or why you feel the things that you feel. You must look elsewhere for that essential explanation that can tell you all your motivations about all your actions. And for those in that, in that camp, the driving force behind the mechanisms of your personality or even your own disappointment can be explained from some kind of innate instinct toward survival, some innate allergy to extinction. That's what you see in sci-fi movies. That's what's presupposed by different expressions of evolutionary theory. You exist just to keep existing and help make more humans. Just because 
somewhere deep down inside of you, we don't want to become extinct. This, this explanation isn't good enough and it isn't true. Next, we also don't exist to achieve self-actualization. And the ads, the ads in between YouTube videos wouldn't say it that way, but that's what they mean by things like you can achieve your own self-fulfillment. You can achieve your own self-satisfaction. You can achieve your own self-realization. This is the other sneaky and kind of hidden explanation for why we're here. And this explanation does have meaning and purpose. In this explanation, we are here for a reason. We are here for a purpose. We are here for something. And that something is us. It's us. That's the explanation that lies to you and says that life has tons of meaning and you must find it all inside yourself. You must explore the depths and the caverns of who you are and you must move from one satisfying, one satisfaction of a basic need onto higher levels and depths of uh, sophistication to satisfy all your metaphysical needs like personal fulfillment. So in this case, there's a point to the world and you're it. And while that strokes our pride, this deception is cloaked in all kinds of seemingly harmless thoughts and ideas, and it's in all kinds of books and movies and TV shows. And the truth is, is that if you're the point of everything, it will crush you. You can't bear the weight of that. You weren't made to endure the weight of being the point. Somebody else, somebody else carries that responsibility. That's a lie that we've been told. And let me say it quickly, that it's also a lie that's self-evidently not working. If we were the point of our lives, you'd think that by now we'd see overwhelming positive outcomes from our cultural shift to focus more and more and more on the individual self. You'd think that we'd see statistics associated with Instagram and Facebook that personal health and satisfaction are on the uptick, but that's not the case. You'd think that all the innovations in technology and social media would be improving the inner quality of our lives toward personal happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment, but that's not the case. We don't see that anywhere. Loneliness and anxiety are everywhere in our culture. Assigning the meaning of our lives to ourselves and our own fulfillment is not solving any of the problems associated with personal difficulty, personal distress, personal unhappiness, personal struggle. It doesn't work and it isn't working. We're here for a reason and that reason is bigger than us. It's grander than us. It's more important than we are. The story that we find ourselves in, that's the best story that's ever been told, is about something greater than us. And that reality is a fundamental reality to the Christian life. Christians know that we're here for something and toward something. We're here to work. And at this church, we assume that every person that comes through our door exists for the vocation that God gave us at the beginning of time to all of mankind at creation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. We read it last week that God created us and he created us for a reason. Verse 28 says, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That 
phrase, that, that sentence, that, that, that verse of the Bible encapsulates what's called the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate. God sets the stage for all of creation right here saying, be full, fruitful and multiply. And later on, after the flood, he restates this instruction with Noah. We're to be working like people in a garden. God created us for work and that did not change with the fall. There's sometimes a misunderstanding that with the fall comes a curse and the curse is work. But that's false. Toil is the curse. Work is not the curse. So sweat and thorns are the curse. The work was here before the fall and, this, and the work is here after the fall. It's a part of the, the, the natural universal vocation of all of human beings. God created us for work and that did not change with the fall. He, he created us to cultivate. This is the biblical principle beneath those words, the work of the Christian life. There's a lot of texts that I could have chosen, but I wanted us to focus on what we mean when we talk about cultivation here at our church. And I think this text from 2 Timothy reminds us of the sheer kind of sweaty effort that's all over the Bible. I'm going to quickly talk about what we cultivate as we suffer and we discipline ourselves and we walk di diligently in obedience. So if you've closed your Bibles and you feel like it, you can open them back up to 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. It's on page 995. I chose this text because of the three illustrations of difficult work and three illustrations that Paul couples with how Christians share in hardship and suffering and difficulty in this life. Starting in verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We entrust something to someone, they entrust it to somebody else, to somebody else, to somebody else, to somebody else, to somebody else. And so transmits the faith of, the Christian, of Christians over generations that they will be able to teach also. Share in suffering. Share in suffering as good as a good soldier of Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And that's all I want us to do this morning for the rest of our time is think about what Paul is saying. Think hard about what Paul is saying. Use our minds and set them to the work to consider what he says here. We want to listen to him and we're going to think about these metaphors and let them speak to what we're here for today and what we're here for to do day in and day out, week in, week out, year in, year out. These verses give instructions. These verses say to entrust and to share, entrust to faithful men. And right here, this is not specific to only men. Entrust to faithful men and women who will teach others. And in doing that, share, share in the suffering, the difficulty, the hardship, the trouble, the toil that doing this will create. Doing this kind of hard work 
will be hard like a soldier. Doing this kind of hard work will be hard like the hard work of an athlete. It'll be hard like the hard work of a farmer. The fundamental reality baked into the words to cultivate is that the Christian life is a life lived against the current. It's a life lived against the current. Your life, our lives are hard because we're Christians, not despite the fact that we are Christians. That's a fundamental assumption about the mission of our church. When I was married, I got married later in life. I think it was older than the national average. And when I got married, a lot of people that I knew that I respected, that I loved, who were godly people were already married and already had started families. So I went and talked to those people and found out how in the world you, uh, you do that. I asked tons of people and got tons of advice. And for some reason, at this point in like the, I don't know, the last 10 years of the Christian church in America, there was a lot of trendy advice to just talk on and on and on about how terrible the first year of marriage was. How like just God awful your first year was going to be. It was like you had to scare everybody so that the, the rest of their lives they enjoyed it. It's not always that way, but when my wife, my wife and I were in like premarital counseling, this is like the advice we got over and over and over again, but we still got married. <laughs> Amen. I love being married. I'm glad that I'm married and I still love being married. And when I'm talking to couples that are thinking about marriage, I tell them that story so that they can know that, hey, it can be very, very, very difficult. And it can also be a lot of fun. It can be rich and vibrant, and beautiful, and life-giving, and joyful. Because I knew somewhere along the way, somebody planted something in me, somebody sowed something in me that I knew that there was no road to a beautiful, vibrant, Christian, God-glorifying marriage that wasn't coupled with or wedded to also just tons and tons and tons of hard work. Tons of hard work. And that was baked into my vision for what it would look like to have a beautiful marriage from the beginning. I always believed that if you wanted something beautiful, you had to tend to it the same way that a, uh, a gardener has to tend to a garden. Constant work, constant attention, constant care. And I say that to say that the Christian life is full of joy but it's a joy that we know that the suffering is doing something. It's achieving something. The same way the hard work of cultivation everywhere is achieving something. It's planting something. It's, it's got the long game in mind. Work, the work of the Christian life pays. And here, Paul compares the pain and work of the Christian life to the pain and work of being a soldier, of being an athlete, and being a farmer. This text just says to share in this kind of suffering. So I'm going to talk about Paul's three illustrations of good suffering in the Christian life. First, let's talk about suffering like a soldier. In this text, the thought is that soldiers don't get entangled with civilian pursuits, which is another way that it's embracing a calling that constantly avoids distraction. Embracing a calling that is focused and, and single-minded. Here the Apostle Paul is instructing his son in the faith to stay focused. And this is something that we need and we need to think about all the time and we need to think about right now. Stay focused on what God has put in front of you. 
Stay focused on the prize. Stay focused on the goal. Stay focused on the reward, on the treasure. Soldiers are willing to pay enormous costs for the sake of proven or demonstrated faithfulness. This is the kind of focus that we need. This is the kind of unswerving attention that we must give to the work in front of us, the work that matters, the work that we've been selected for. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Good works that God in his infinite goodness dreamed up before we were ever on the scene. God's ordained a path for us in obedience to Christ. To live this out will take dedication and single-mindedness and purpose and focus to please the one that enlisted us. This is a life, a whole life, that's oriented, oriented to be a pleasing aroma to God, to love God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength, with the kind of zeal and the kind of attention and the kind of undivided allegiance that a soldier demonstrates. Next, we're exhorted to suffer like an athlete. And there's lots of ways that athletes suffer. That's why I'm not an athlete. There's lots of ways that they suffer. But in this text, we won't win the prize if we don't play the game the way it's supposed to be played. That's what's highlighted. We have rules to play by as Christians. We have clear instructions in places like the Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to look at in the fall. We have clear instructions given to us by Jesus on how to treat other people and how to go about our work and ministry in this life. We have clear instructions from God about what obedience looks like. We have clear instructions about what love looks like. We have clear instructions about how to live our lives submitted to God's word. The athlete pays the price of integrity. The athlete pays the price of probity and the rules of engagement, following the outlined rules. The athlete here is exhorted to obey the principles and boundaries the same way that followers of Jesus are exhorted to listen to him and obey the principles laid out in scripture. And there's a kind of struggle, there's a kind of struggle that's always upstream that accords with obedience in the Christian life. I was listening to a missionary or a man that came in from the field as a longtime missionary, and he's exhorting this room full of missionaries. And his kind of um, climax of his talk after he tried to encourage them and strengthen them and give them faith and hope, he got to this one sentence that has been and will be haunting me for my ministry. And it was, Jesus never said that it would be a fair fight. Jesus never said that it would be a fair fight. It would be beautiful. It would be worth it. He would be with us. But he didn't say that it would be easy. And he never said that it would be a fair fight. There's a kind of struggle that's always upstream that accords with the obedience to Jesus that we want. You can get out of the water and you can try to walk on the bank or you can give in and just start floating with the current. And both of those, both of those will alleviate suffering for a while. Both of those will alleviate the hardship and the difficulty and the struggle for a while, but not forever. You can cheat or you can quit. 
And then you won't get the crown that's described here, and you won't be doing what you were made for. The suffering of this athlete is the suffering of integrity and not cheating and not cutting corners when it seems so tempting to. There's no shortcuts to the prize. The work of cultivation will never be easier or less complicated than it is right now. The truth is that there are no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts in our lives. And at this church, we want to be the kind of people who know, who know that and are okay with that and embrace that and encourage each other in the process. Next, we're to suffer like a farmer. You might not know this about me, but I come from a long line of generations of farmers that have uh, farmed in eastern, northeastern Missouri and Illinois for generations. And I know that many of you, maybe one or two, might know a farmer in this crowd. My point is that I do not think that this metaphor is lost on this church right now in our location in the heartland. The suffering of the farmer is the day-to-day plodding, one day at a time, of what needs to be done next. Farmers are the archetype of diligence in the, in the New Testament. They're the archetype of diligence in all these different organic metaphors that are throughout the scriptures. Farmers know how to work and they know how to suffer. They march, they plod, they trudge, task after task, morning after morning. They know what, that true work, true productivity cannot be microwaved. It just takes a thousand little routines. Nothing fancy, but nothing neglected. My grandfather was a hog farmer, a hog hog, uh, farmer in Northeast Missouri, and that man just worked. He just worked. He got up before the sun did, and he didn't come home until the sun was going to sleep. He was strong and gruff, and his skin was brown and wrinkled from the sun. He knew what it meant to do the boring to do the mundane, to do the work of a farmer, to do the next thing that needed attention. And for us, the Christian life isn't, let me just spoil this for you guys. Let me give a a spoiler alert. The Christian life isn't glamorous. The Christian life isn't dazzling. The Christian life is plain and glorious. It's just the simple, faithful plotting of an obscure farmer in the middle of nowhere, faithfully accomplishing everything that needs to be done, providing for his family, and carving out a living for himself to offer back to the living God. Paul calls us here to share in the suffering of a soldier, the suffering of an athlete, and the suffering of a farmer. Each example provides different incentives, but all the examples run on grace. I deliberately front-loaded this sermon with all the work, all the action, all the kind of like sweaty industry, someone once said, because I want the culmination of that understanding to um, terminate and be swallowed up in the grace of God in your life. We were created for work and we were created for a steady stream of good works that God thought up before we ever existed. We were created for the kind of attentive cultivation that somebody in charge of a garden has. And all of this is through grace. Grace, 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 
grace, grace. Grace all the way to the bottom, grace through and through. Before this text instructs us to share in suffering, this text begins by saying, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. All the work in your life takes strength, and all strength takes grace. Every single thing you long to change in your life takes work, and all work takes strength, and all strength takes grace. 1 Corinthians 15.10 explains one of the most powerful truths in the Christian life. Somewhere somebody said it like this. Grace is opposed to earning. Earning, earning. You cannot earn the grace of God, but the grace of God is not opposed to effort. Listen to the Apostle Paul. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. This is how grace functions in the Christian life. The grace of God in your life is the fuel that transformation runs on. The grace of God in your life is the fuel that sanctification runs on. The grace of God in your life is the fuel that obedience runs on. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Every good work. And earlier in the book of 2 Timothy, we read that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. You see, God's purpose in our lives is sustained through our hard work and suffering only, only, only through the powerful reality of the grace of God. It's yours. That's what I'm here to remind you of this morning. That grace is yours in Christ. It's yours this morning in Christ Jesus. In Christ, you can stare down the challenges of your life. In Christ, you can have the grace to forgive somebody who's hurt you beyond what you could ever, what you ever think you could forgive. In Christ, you can have the grace to take another step forward. In Christ, you can have the grace to fight like a soldier with undivided focus. In Christ, you can have the grace to labor like an athlete that plays within the boundaries of God's instruction. In, in Christ, you can have the grace to diligently go one day at a time, one moment at a time, like a hard-working father or a hard-working farmer, not neglecting all of his duties. In Christ, we have the grace to live lives full of purpose and cultivation. In Christ, you have the grace you need for the obedience that God requires. In Christ, you have the grace you need to get back up when you stumble, repent again, return again, look again at the eyes of a smiling father with our open arms ready to forgive. In Christ, you have the grace that you need, mom and dad, to keep after it with those kids. In Christ, you have the grace that you need to have the integrity 
to work like God has instructed you to. In Christ, you have the grace that you need to run from temptation. In Christ, you have the grace that you need to abound in every good work, plodding forward one day at a time. Human beings are constantly, constantly, constantly tempted to separate or pit against each other grace and work. Because of verses like Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, it's hard for us to understand how we can read, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it's a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. It's hard for us to read that and understand how they work together, but the Bible makes it clear that grace and good works do belong together. The former is never the result of the latter. And what I mean by that is that grace and faith and good works are all best friends in the Bible. Grace and faith and good works are all best friends in the Bible. Our flesh wants to rearrange them, but our work will never get us grace and our work will never force God to give us grace or force God to give us more faith. Those things are gifts. Those things are gifts, and your faith and your grace in Christ will always accomplish good works. We're created to do good works. He made us to do the good works, and if you're wondering which ones, it's the ones that are right in front of you. We'll make it easier on ourselves. It's the ones that are right there. We're created to do good works. He made us to do good works. He made us so that we would walk in them by the sustaining power of the unending storehouses of grace that he gives out to us. And that, that's the normal Christian life. And at this church, we assume that we have hard work to do because we believe and cherish and arrange our lives around the Bible. We operate from an understanding that Christians are called to live lives of hardship that are unique, difficulty that's unique, against the current that is unique because of the faith we have and the obedience that we're desiring to demonstrate. We operate from an understanding that Christians are called to live those kinds of lives that coincide with productive labor. No one's exempt. No one's exempt. And all the grace that you need for the work that God is setting in front of your face right now isn't just handed to you, it was bought. It was purchased. It was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only hope that we have. Left to yourselves, your work and obedience will turn into legalism and Phariseeism. Left to yourselves, you will think that you are earning God's grace. Left to ourselves, we will drift off of center and start to believe that God owes us something. But if we stare at the cross, if we stare at the cross, if we stare at the cross where Jesus Christ died to buy the grace that gives us the strength to take one step forward, we'll be humble. It'll keep us arranged. It'll keep us understanding um, how grace functions in our lives. And that's the exact same reason that we end every single service the same way every single week. We proclaim that to ourselves to each other, and to the world. We proclaim Christ's life, death, and resurrection to ourselves again through communion, to each other through communion, and to the watching world through communion. So in just a second, I'm going to invite anybody up who 
Is a Christian anybody who puts all of their faith and hope in Jesus Christ's work on the cross? And if you're a Christian here, we invite you to come forward to, to take communion. But if you're not a Christian, I would invite you to pray. I would invite you to question. I would invite you to consider. God's not afraid of your questions. We always want to uh, preach here and live here and be hospitable here like non-believers are in this space. We're, we're glad that you're here. And we would invite you to pray yourself. We'll have ministers over here underneath this window who would love to pray with you or for you for anything. Anything. The way we take communion here at Redeemer is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into the cup. The stoneware is wine and the glassware is juice. There'll be a station to my right, to my left, and then a station up in the balcony. And there'll also be a station down here in the center, which is gluten-free and single serve. And if you're trusting Jesus for your righteousness, if all your faith and hope is in him, we invite you to take communion. I'm going to pray for us and thank Jesus and then the... Uh, the rest of the worship leaders and the, um, the servers are going to come forward. So please uh, pray with me. Jesus, we honor you this morning. We honor you in faith. We eat in faith. We trust you in faith. We look to you in faith. For those of us who are broken down, for those of us who have been plotting and we are broken down, Lord, would you bring brothers and sisters around that person and strengthen them, hold them up? For those of us who are prideful, who think that we can do this life without you, that we don't need your grace, that we're doing pretty good on our own, would you cut us down? Would you convict us? For those of us who are weary, would you comfort us? And for all of us, Holy Spirit, make the truth of the Lordship of Jesus Christ known in this congregation deeply, deep in the bottom of who we are so we can give our lives away, so that we can walk one day at a time, one step at a time, that we can serve you in the grace that you provide so that nobody can boast. But all the glory always is aimed back up to you. Let us be the kind of people who offer our lives as living sacrifices that have the aroma of the worship of Jesus Christ. We ask all of this and we, and, and, and we, and we thank you, Jesus. We're grateful for your body and your blood. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Come up when you're ready.